It's President's Day to celebrate the holiday. Which four Seahawks belong on the franchise's Mount Rushmore? Rob and I will be debating on the latest episode of Locked On Seahawks. <laughs> You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for our President's Day show, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. We've got a jam-packed episode coming your way. We're going to dissect a few mock drafts out there on the internet from CBS Sports, Pro Football Network, and a number of other outlets. Plus, for Makeover Monday, we're going to be looking at what personnel changes the Seahawks might need to make on defense after Clint Hurt vowed to have a more aggressive defense with some schematic adjustments in 2022. Thanks for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. This episode's brought your way by Bet Online. Bet Online as he covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online, where the game starts. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. It's a nice holiday, very nice weather out here in the Pacific Northwest for this time of year to celebrate President's Day, Rob. Going to take a little bit of a lighter side to our opening segment here on today's show and and have a nice spirited debate about who belongs on the Seahawks' Mount Rushmore. And it's really difficult. When you look at the number of star players and great coaches and owners the Seahawks have had in their 46 years of existence, trying to whittle this number down to having just four names, four faces on Mount Rushmore, that is an extremely difficult task. We put up an article today on the Seahawk Maven where several writers, including myself, pitched our picks for those four. And there were a couple that were pretty easy selections. And after that, uh, this was an excruciating experience because of the star power the Seahawks have as a franchise. Yeah, and I love that you just mentioned the different owners that might uh, be on that list, the different coaches that might be on that list. I mean, let's just for the the sake of conversation today, Corbin, let's just focus in on the players. And, um, you know, I get maybe it's just the history teacher in me that when I think of Mount Rushmore, I, of course, think about the the legendary American presidents that, uh, you know, were, you know, serving and unfortunately passed away long before you and I were alive. So that was one of the ways that I kind I looked at this is that who are players that are no longer on the roster? Who are you think some of the players that are already in Seattle's ring of honor? There, there's 14 men who are on Seattle's ring of honor. If you just whittle that down to the players, then you're basically you're talking about 10 players, uh, you know, and, and so that's the kind of the guys that I was uh, thinking of. I think that you could certainly mention a player like a Russell Wilson. I think that he's the best player in franchise history. You could mention a player like Sean Alexander, obviously one of the very, the, the first MVP in his franchise's history. And, you know, through his running, that's why Seattle qualified for their first Super Bowl. Uh, but at the same time for me, I think the two easy answers that you just kind of alluded to here, Steve Largent and Walter Jones, uh, you know, I think that they are just their dominance at their positions. Uh, certainly the the production, um, the statistics of Steve Largent, everything they did on and off the field, I think speaks for itself. But for me, the other two, uh, I got to go with Cortez Kennedy and Kenny Easley with a tip of the cap to Dave Brown. And I would argue the perennially underrated and late great Dave Brown. 
You're throwing out some of these older Seahawks. I'm going to make sure I mention Jacob Green was a name that I consider yes. for this list. And he is a guy that's in the ring of honor, never really considered for the Hall of Fame, which I think is a travesty. I think if you it look is. at what Jacob Green did in his career in an era where teams were not passing the football near as much as they do today, he retired as the number three sack guy in the NFL. Now, obviously, a number of guys have passed him since he retired. But again, we're talking different eras. So Jacob Green was certainly a player that I considered. Cortez Kennedy was my last one out. We're getting into March Madness here soon. So already starting to think about the bubble watch here. So that's how I was operating, putting this list together. And what Cortez Kennedy did during his time in Seattle getting five All-Pro selections, a guy that was in the Pro Bowl pretty much every year he was in the league, and he played for some really bad teams. And getting Defensive Player of the Year on a 2-14 and 14 team, that's just unheard of. You have to take your dominance to just a whole other level for the rest of the league to be like, you know what, that team is really bad, but that Cortez Kennedy is phenomenal. Defensive Player of the Year material, that's what he did in 1992. So it was difficult to pass on him. Some of the more modern Seahawks, Players like Camp Chancellor certainly were in consideration. Sean Alexander, one of my favorite running backs that I've ever watched play this game. Another guy I'm surprised hasn't gotten a little bit more action in the Hall of Fame voting. I considered him a number of players that missed out on this. And I'm in agreement with you. To me, the biggest shoe in here, any list that doesn't have Walter Jones on it, I, I just have to dismiss because he is easily the greatest player in franchise history. We're talking a guy that might be a top 10 player in the NFL in its history, Rob. Nine holding penalties in his entire career. He had almost as many all-pro selections as holding penalties in his career, which still just blows my mind. And he was a pro bowler for nine times. I mean, this guy was just an incredible player. And obviously, you and I both know him off the field as well. A great guy and just had unorthodox training methods. Steve Largent was a player ahead of his time that apparently Bum Phillips didn't think was good enough to be on the Oilers. So they traded him to the Seahawks after training camp for an eighth-round pick. I think that was a pretty good eighth-round pick investment the Seahawks made for a receiver that finished his career as the all-time leader in receiving yardage and receptions and with 100 even touchdowns in his career. One of the best receivers ever, and I would have loved to see the numbers that Steve Largent could have put up in today's game where teams are slinging the rock all over the place. So I picked those two, and then that's where you and I kind of went into different avenues here. Russell Wilson's on my list because he is the greatest quarterback in franchise history, by and large. It's not even close. No offense to Matt Hasselbeck and Dave Craig, but the numbers that he's put up, his path to Seattle being a third-round pick and exceeding expectations from day one, tying Peyton Manning that rookie season for the most passing touchdowns by a rookie quarterback, leading the team to two Super Bowls and one Super Bowl victory, nine-time Pro Bowler. He has to be on this list. Oh, by the way, if you're looking off the field, he's a Walter Peyton Man of the Year winner too. So he deserves to be on this list. And this is where things got tough. I mentioned Cortez Kennedy, but – I have got to put beast mode on my list. And here's my argument. There are a number of players that I didn't pick that you could probably look statistically that had better careers than what Marshawn Lynch did. He wasn't drafted by the Seahawks. He spent time with the Raiders. He was beginning his career in Buffalo, but he had four straight years with over 1,200 rushing yards and 10 or more rushing touchdowns. He did it four consecutive seasons. Only five other running backs in NFL history have done that. So he's an elite company there. And I think he was the heartbeat of those championship teams. 
in 2013 and 2014. You take Marshawn Lynch away, I mean, how many running backs have the iconic runs that he has? And this entire team, he just seemed to shoulder the load and truck sticking and stiff arming guys left and right. He was the heartbeat of this football team. And I think he's arguably the most popular player ever to wear a Seahawks uniform. Fans adore Marshawn Lynch. And so I had to keep him on this list. Yeah, I I would have a hard time disagreeing with any of the statements that you just made there. I love the fact that you you started off there with Jacob Green. Um, he was one of the players that right there with, with Dave Brown, I just think was just absolutely remarkable football player. It is. You used the word travesty, and I would underline that, um, you know, because it is. If he played for a team that got more national attention than the Seattle Seahawks did, in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, then, then he absolutely would be a Hall of Famer, quite possibly have been a first ballot Hall of Famer because he was that good. Number 79 was absolutely dominant. Um, and, and so, again, a travesty. Uh, and then and then to, to wrap up your point about Marshawn Lynch, yes, I mean, we're talking about the truly the icons, uh, you know, uh, in NFL history. To me, you, you mentioned Sean Alexander before, and again, I mean, he was the MVP. He took his team to a Super Bowl as well, uh, with all due respect as, you know, as well to the quarterback there, Matt Hasbeck, the head coach there, Mike Holmgren, um, Walter Jones, Steve Hutchinson. I mean, so many great players on that team that uh, that lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers and the referees in that Super Bowl so many years ago. You know, but uh, but I just think what Marshawn Lynch did, he he just brought that different element of toughness to the Seahawks. Uh, the fact that he came back out of retirement and still was arguably Seattle's most consistent player on the football field, uh, you know, in, in that playoff loss a couple of years back. I mean, he just brings a different level of reverence um, and, and popularity to, to the Seahawks. So I think, again, you have to give an awful lot of respect to him also. I think you could have gone with five or six other guys minimum for the last two positions. And that's what made it such a fun yet brutal exercise trying to whittle this down to four players. Those of you that are listening in the comment section on YouTube or you can find us on social media, let us know which picks you agree with, which ones you don't, who you would have selected. We'd love to hear from you. We're going to shift gears to the present looking at some mock drafts. It's that time of year. We are getting closer to the draft, the combine coming up here soon. Pro days, going to be a lot of draft coverage coming up here on Locked on Seahawks. So we're going to be looking at a number of mock drafts that are out there right now on the internet from various outlets, including Rob's very own on Fox Sports. This is the time of year that I've pretty much given up on all of my New Year's resolutions. I'm barely hanging on at this point, but I'm sticking to my resolution to eat right thanks to Built Bar. If you haven't tried the new Built Bar Puffs yet, you are missing out. One of the best Built Bars on the market. It's been my go-to snack before lifting weights or running. They're the first ever protein-infused marshmallow, fluffy, marshmallowy, not just a protein bar. They're a treat, and they come in a number of delicious flavors, including coconut marshmallow and banana cream pie. All Built Bars are covered in 100% real chocolate, including puffs, low-calorie, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. And regular Built Bars also come in a number of amazing flavors. Coconut, coconut almond. This month, you can get white chocolate cookies and cream. They're all delicious, and new flavors are coming out all the time. Go to Built.com and use the promo code LOCK15 and get 15% off your order. That's LOCK15 at Built.com for 15% off your next order. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, President's Day edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, 
Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. It is officially mock draft season, and this is something we normally start in mid to late February. Each week, we are going to be diving into a number of mock drafts that are out there on the internet from places like CBS Sports, Pro Football Network, Fox Sports. I wonder who does their mock drafts. We're going to be looking at a number of mock drafts each and every Monday coming from various places. Let's start with your mock draft, Rob, with Fox Sports. You had the Seahawks pick at number 41 on your multiple round mock. Who do you have going to the Seahawks in your latest mock draft? Well, I, I got one that's a little bit of a surprise, I think, to a lot of Seahawks fans. And, uh, you know, I, but at the same time, I think the fact that the Seahawks have three of their four starting defensive backs from a year ago, Corbin, are, are, are at least pending uh, free agents here, including both the cornerbacks. So I really think that cornerback is going to be a position that Seattle will uh, use at least one of their draft picks this spring uh, to try to fix that issue. Um, Roger McCreary from Auburn does not check any of the Seahawks boxes that you typically have looked for in terms of height, in terms of arm length, uh, you know, all these different metrics that, that the Seahawks fans have grown accustomed to with what the what, what Seattle is looking for at the cornerback position. He reminds me an awful lot of DJ Reed in that he is scrappy, he is physical, he has great route awareness, he has great uh, fluidity in his change of direction, he has a spectacular straight line speed, he's going to test really well. Um, he's a really good football player he's a guy that i think should go in the first round i just don't think he's going to because he does have he does lack height he does lack arm length he does have small hands he doesn't have uh you know quite as many interceptions as you would like over his career but having evaluated him from the sideline in mobile alabama at the senior bowl corbin uh, i i can tell you that I, you know, at least in my opinion he was the stickiest cornerback there. And I will talk about this a little bit later. I do expect Seattle to prioritize pure man-to-man cover skills a little bit more moving forward. Roger McCreary would make an awful lot of sense for the Seahawks if he were available, if the Seahawks stay at number 41. And that might be a player that a year or two ago they wouldn't look at closely, but we know they love their senior bowl prospects and seeing how well Trey Brown played in limited action last year, what DJ Reed's done for them the last few years. Reed and Sidney Jones going to be free agents on March 16th. Who knows if one or both are even going to be back. So they're going to be looking at this very deep cornerback class closely. Now, combing through some of the other mock drafts that are out there, I want to start, <clears throat> I want to start with this one from Pro Football Focus because as you and I both expected, there are going to be some experts out there that decide, you know what, it'd be fun to see what life might be like in the draft if the Seahawks trade Russell Wilson. And of course, leave it to Pro Football Focus, who is our colleague Nick Lee has pointed out on social media, there might not be a social media handle that loves Russell Wilson photoshopped jerseys more than Pro Football Focus. I think they've put him in all 31 other teams at this point. And in their mock draft, they have the Washington Commanders trading their first-round pick as part of a package to get Russell Wilson and the Seahawks with the number 11 pick they get from Washington, drafting his replacement. And I can tell you, Rob, we've talked about this a number of times, Maybe Sam Howell figures it out in the NFL. You do see the physical tools from the North Carolina quarterback, but if the Seahawks are going to move on from Russell Wilson, this does not seem to me like the right path to find a successor in a player that was very inconsistent at North Carolina. 
I think it's the path to about three victories next year, Corbin. I mean, that, that's the thing. I just have a hard time imagining that's something that the Seahawks would do. Uh, you know, and I, I think the Washington uh, Commanders are a really talented team. I think that uh, that Washington would make, it would make a lot of sense for their perspective to be able to get a quarterback as, as talented as Wilson, Ron Rivera, a head coach. We know that he likes the the idea of a veteran quarterback rather than going with a rookie. Um, so yeah, and from that perspective, it sounds great. Uh, but from a Seattle perspective, I mean, just think about it from Russell Wilson. I mean, he, Washington, of course, was not among the teams that he reportedly put out there as a possible team to trade uh, be traded to. If he was going to go to Washington, while they do have some talent around him, again, Ron Rivera's head coach. I mean, you know, if if Russell Wilson has an issue with Pete Carroll as a head coach, Ron Rivera, the defensive-minded former linebacker that he is, I don't think that they're suddenly going to let Russ cook in the nation's capital. So I just think that this this trade proposal is kind of silly. Um, I am actually a little bit more of a fan of Sam Howell than, than some people appear to be. At the same time, I don't think that he is anywhere near being ready to come in and and lead a franchise, especially not one who has a coach as, as old as Pete Carroll. It's, I think that the, it's very unlikely that Seattle is going to just you know push all their chips in and go with a super young. Uh, you know, quarterback like how. Uh, so to me, again, I, I just think that this kind of a, a crazy idea out there. I, I think that if Seattle was in fact going to trade Russell Wilson, the number of first round picks that would be coming back to them are certainly not reflected in this little mock draft that, that PFF put together. So to me, again, how is intriguing. Ebikitty, Arnold Ebikitty from, from uh, Penn State was the other player that the PFF had mocked to Seattle. To me, he's an interesting guy. He's got some twitch to him, uh, as we're going to talk about in our next segment here. Um, well, again, we do think that Seattle is going to be a little bit more aggressive on the defensive side of the ball. I think that you pairing him with Daryl Taylor, perhaps with Carlos Dunlap, perhaps some big name free agent. It's intriguing. Again, I just don't know that you're getting enough bang for your buck, uh, you know, with a, with a second or even perhaps early third round selection. I have Ebikady as a third rounder, and we've talked about a number of Penn State prospects over the past couple of years. We saw what Parsons did in his rookie season with the Dallas Cowboys. Ebikady is not that same player. He has some quick twitch, but he's not the most explosive athlete you're going to find. He doesn't have the bend getting around the corner that you would see from a player like Parsons. I actually see some parallels in his game to another former Nittany Lion, in Yitor Gross Matos, who we actually mocked a number of times, a much different build, but you see some similarities in play style. He's a good hand technician, and I think that's what has allowed him to have success last year, nine and a half sacks for the Nittany Lions. At 253 pounds, he's got the right size to be a Sam linebacker. I think in a 3-4 system as an outside backer, that is the best chance for him to be an every down player in the league. I don't see him having a strong enough lower body, though, to be able to hold up as an every down defensive end in the league, he's going to have to either get a lot stronger, especially in the lower body, or he's going to have to be playing an outside linebacker position. Now the Seahawks, we think they're going to be playing as we'll be talking about next segment. They're going to be playing more of a three, four structure with those two overhanging linebackers. That would be a good fit for this player. I think that he's got the upside to maybe even push being a double digit sack guy, but he kind of looks like one of those prospects that might be a very high floor not necessarily the highest ceiling coming into the league. I've got a third-round grade on him, so maybe with their third-round selection, it would make sense. At 41, it depends on what's available, but that could end up being a reach for a player that could come in and help you. But I think that there's not a lot of positional flexibility there necessarily. Looking at our next one here real quick, NFL.com. 
Chad Reuter's selecting Perry and Winfrey at number 41. Now, Winfrey was a player that had one whale of a week in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. 292 pounds, a very good athlete at that size. I've liked what I've seen on film. He has had his struggles defending the run, which is always something that Pete Carroll is going to be cognizant of when he's looking at defensive tackles. If you can't defend the run well, he's going to have a difficult time wanting to bring you in because that is one of his top priorities is slowing down opposing run game. This is a kid that has good hand technique. He can play big end. I think in a 3-4 scheme at 292 pounds, that might actually be the best fit for him. And I think he's also a player, if you're looking more at a 4-3 structure, he can play that 3-tech. He can play 2-I. Even in pass rushing situations, maybe as a nose, you can move him around the line. And I think the burst he's got, his initial first step, not the best lateral athlete, but I don't know if that matters when you're looking at somebody that's going to collapse the pocket. And that's what this guy brings to the table. Yeah, he absolutely does. Uh, you know, he actually kind of reminds me of another former uh, Oklahoma Sooner way back in the day, Tommy Harris, in, in terms of his ability to be a penetrator in the inside. Uh, you, you mentioned how what a what a disruptive force that Perry Winfrey was at the Senior Bowl. He absolutely was that. Um, we talked about the the fact that, that Seattle kind of needs that junkyard dog kind of mentality. Winfrey has that as well. The problem I have with Winfrey is that he's just so up and down. Um, now that is like yep. Yeah, that has not scared the Seahawks in the past, sometimes to their detriment. Um, and so this is a player who I think would be in play for Seattle if they sat around at number 41, um, just because I think that there are a number of difference-making edge rushers in this draft class who who warrant that number 41 overall selection, Corbin. I don't know that there's that many interior defensive linemen who warrant number 41 overall, but I do believe that Winfrey would. So if he was available at this spot and Seattle's choice of the pass rushers was gone, maybe they feel pretty good about the cornerbacks and their depth, their, excuse me, their ability to find cornerbacks has been proven over and over again uh, on draft day. So uh, it would make some sense to me. To me, this is an interesting pick for the Seahawks. Uh, Perry and Winfrey from Oklahoma at at that spot. And then with uh, Chad also put out a a second pick for the Seahawks in third round uh, with the, the, the Tulsa offensive tackle. Uh, Tyson Smith, excuse me, Tyler Smith. Um, and, and this guy is just absolutely massive. He's six, six, he's 330 pounds. Um, you know, I just have my reservations about anytime you're taking a relatively small school player, um, and, and taking, putting him in with the Seahawks. I mean, they just have not shown a preference for doing that at all. Now I, I say that acknowledging that that Steve Largent, one the, you know, the first ballot kind of guy, uh, you know, that we talked about before played, of course, his collegiate ball at Tulsa, but at the same time, you know, this is a whole different regime that are drafting for the Seahawks now than, than back in the day, making that trade. So I just have a hard time believing that Seattle would be willing to invest that early of a draft pick in a player who is a red shirt sophomore, only has two seasons playing at the collegiate level. Um, and then again, was playing at Tulsa. I just think that if you're going to be going for Dwayne Brown, uh, era parent, you're much more likely to be drafting a guy out of the Big Ten, the SEC, one of those premier programs. And I don't see him as a tackle the next level. Me personally, he is a good athlete for his size, but a lot of issues at the college level with those twitchier edge rushers. So what's he going to do in the NFL playing off edge? I think that when you use his mauling style in the interior as a guard, it's a better fit. Not that he can't be a tackle in the league, but I just have my reservations that picking him that early, a player that's going to be raw coming into the league, he's got his issues technique-wise that are well-documented. He's going to need coached up. Now, maybe Andy Dickerson's looking at him and thinking, 
hey, at 330, this guy does have the athleticism to be a capable zone blocker, and he also can drive people off the ball. We can get his pass protection up there. Maybe that's a player they're interested in. I just don't know that I necessarily see the scheme fit, and I'm not sure I see the positional fit with them being loaded with guards right now. So I'm not sure down the line if that's the kind of player they're going to look at, but that's going to be one of the fascinating things to watch this offseason is what the Seahawks do with the offensive line now that Mike Solari's out and Andy Dickerson has called all the shots. Are they still going to be bringing in some of those bigger-bodied guards and tackles, or are they going to be going for a little different style player? That's going to be fascinating to watch in coming months. It's Makeover Monday. We're going to be looking, as we do each and every week, at a roster-related topic. We've talked a lot about personnel these first two segments and what might need to happen on the defensive side of the ball change-wise, adjusting their personnel to be able to do what Clint Hurt wants to do defensively in 2022. Football might be over for this season, but basketball is in full steam for both pro and college hoops. From all the latest odds, totals, player performance props, to where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline.net is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. BetOnline remains the best spot for all your sports scores, podcasts, and news this offseason. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline.net is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. BetOnline, where the game starts. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, President Day edition. I'm Corbin Smith, joined by Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. It's Makeover Monday. Each and every Monday, tackling a roster-related issue for the Seahawks. We've looked at Dwayne Brown, what's going to happen with him in the left tackle position. We've taken a bigger, larger scope with the offensive line, what Bobby Wagner's future may hold. This week, we're going to examine personnel on the defensive side of the football. The Seahawks, according to Clint Hurt last week, he really opened up. The curtain showed what he's planning to do as defensive coordinator more than I thought he was going to. He was more revealing than I anticipated. He said they're going to blitz more, more man coverage. They're going to be more aggressive in general, less dropping back defensive linemen into coverage. So that has led to some speculation that there may be some major personnel changes coming. If you're going to be running more of a Vic Fangio-style 3-4 defense that's more of an attacking defense, more blitzing, more man coverage, maybe they need to shuffle the deck at all three levels and get some players that are better fits. Personally, though, Rob, I have to agree with what Clint Hurt said in another statement where he feels like they have a lot of the players to be able to run this scheme because I see a lot of those three, four elements in what they've done over the years under Pete Carroll, especially last year. It feels like this is just continuing the evolution rather than just getting it started with a new defensive coordinator. Yes, I, I very much agree. I think that sometimes you see teams, Corbin, who they, they hire a brand new coach or they, they hire a coordinator and their roster just doesn't fit with what they're going to try to do. And so you can almost just predict that, okay, this is a team that is going to be going through a true rebuild. No team is going to say that out loud, of course, but you can just, just look at the, the players that they have. It just does not fit their scheme. But but the Seahawks, and this is a testament to Pete Carroll. I mean, he's always, uh, you know, it, their, their base defense has always kind of been a little bit of a 4-3 on paper. But the way that they've actually used their players has very much been using some 3-4 principles for going all the way back to his USC days. Uh, and, and probably previous to that in the NFL with the, the Jets and the Patriots as well. But certainly in Seattle, he has. I mean, just think about how they – 
they use Big Red Bryant uh, for all those years, basically as that kind of you know big base end and, and things of that nature. You, so many times you have seen Daryl Taylor, you know, in, just in, in the last year, um, and he, sometimes he's got his hand in the dirt. Sometimes he's rushing with his, you know, uh, and the two point stance as well. I think that you are going to see much more of that. I think that you might see more of that from the opposite side. I, I'm really fascinated to see the way that they're going to use Jamal Adams and whether or not they see that Bob, they feel that Bobby Wagner is a fit because I do think that you're going to be asking your linebackers and your defensive backs to cover a lot more often in man coverage if you are, in fact, going to be more aggressive and sending more pass rushers. And I do expect them to do that, not because of what Clint, not only because of what Clint Hurt said, but also because we're just seeing how effective that is in today's NFL. Quarterbacks are just getting the ball out so darn quickly. And part of the reason why the Los Angeles Rams are now the team with the ring is, is because of their ability to rush off the edge, not just with Aaron Donald, but all their speed rushers on the outside as well. So I think that in today's copycat NFL, you're going to see a lot of teams, including the Seahawks, are going to be trying to do that. This is a good draft class to do that. A lot of good edge rushers, a lot of good cornerbacks. So again, to me, they, they have a lot of the pieces in place if they can resign some of those cornerbacks. If they can bring back a guy like a Carlos Dunlap and some of Seattle's other uh, edge rushers that's on this roster. And, and that to me is what's going to make this a fascinating uh, move going forward is just who do they bring back? And that's going to help us figure out what, what exactly they're going to do on draft day as well. Yeah, I think that re-signing Quandre Diggs and DJ Reed, we've been talking about it for weeks, and I'm going to maintain my opinion on this. I think those are the two most important free agents the Seahawks have to re-sign. And some of our listeners might be thinking, you know, this defense was 11th last year in scoring. They were near the bottom in passing defense. Why would we be bringing back players in the secondary? I'm going to maintain that I think the bigger issue there has been the lack of pass rush and not being aggressive enough. I like the secondary players the Seahawks have. And I think when you're looking from a scheme fit, again, I don't see this being a roster where the personnel doesn't match up with what Clint Hurt wants to do. There might be a few positions where they can get some upgrades that are going to be a better fit. But Quandre Diggs can play in any scheme. He's a ball-hawking free safety. He's played slack corner before, so he can play in any scheme. DJ Reed, that smaller corner that's got the quickness working for him, last year he got targeted 13 times, according to Pro Football Focus, in man coverage and gave up five receptions. One of them was a touchdown, but, I mean, he was fantastic for the most part when he was in man coverage, and I think it suits his skill set well. Even Sidney Jones, you take out a 68-yard catch that he gave up in their second start they put him in against the Rams, you remove that play, and he was fantastic in man coverage. Trey Brown didn't give up a catch on four targets in man coverage. The guys that they had at corner last year, I think are good fits. They have the athleticism and they have the quickness to be able to man up against speedier receivers and be able to take away some of those routes. They can make plays on the football. So I think that continuity actually is going to be a big thing in that secondary where I think you could see some significant changes though. And we've talked about this as well. Up front in the trenches, I think the interior defensive line I've mentioned Akeem Hicks, Calais Campbell, maybe Ndamukong Sue, an older, wily veteran that can stuff the run still, but also has the ability to disrupt the passing game. Outwoods had 18 pressures last year, so it's not like he was completely one-dimensional. But if you could bring a player like Akeem Hicks in, who's had multiple seasons of 45 or more quarterback pressures, you put him in the interior, it just makes life that much easier for your outside rushers. And then maybe somebody like a Chandler Jones playing that 
overhang linebacker role in more of a 3-4 centric scheme in Seattle. Daryl Taylor or Carlos Dunlap on the other side. I think if you get that alpha dog that can play that that two-point stand-up outside linebacker slash defensive end position in a 3-4, and you can get a disruptive interior rusher to team up with Puna Ford and Al Woods, and I guess you could include Brian Monet in there as well, then suddenly that is a very good defensive line. And if you're more aggressive, they're not dropping back as much, takes pressure off your secondary. Those guys can go out and just play, use their quickness. I really don't feel like they're that many pieces away from being able to make this vision that Clint Hurt has for this defense come to fruition. No, I, I agree. As long as Seattle is able to retain those two, or at least That's one of those, critical. of those two starting cornerbacks there, you know, I mean, and Sean, uh, certainly Quandre Diggs as well. Um, I, I would agree with you. I, he's not necessarily my my top priority. I still think that the top priority has to be protecting Russell Wilson. That means Dwayne Brown. Um, but in terms of just the defensive side of the football, We've talked before about what a terrific player Quandre Diggs is. If you do not bring back Quandre Diggs, you better well have a plan, um, you know. And and so that's that's one that I think has, has some huge concern there. I just wonder if the money runs out. That's again why I was projecting a a cornerback uh, with, with Seattle's top pick. That would be the earliest that the Seahawks have ever used a draft pick during the John Schneider Pete Carroll era on a cornerback. Um, and so that would be very much going against their their tendencies here. And but at the same time, I do think that there is going to be some, uh, you know, again, those schematic changes. I think that if their roster stays the way that it was last year, then it could potentially fit very, very well. I just don't know that they're going to be able to do that. Um, you know, like we talked about before, that you know, Seattle has a, a great deal of salary cap flexibility on paper. But if they start re-signing some of these players, then that that those salary cap dollars are going to shrivel up really, really quickly. So to me, that's going to, again, going to be one of the, the huge conversations that we have all year long. I do, again, expect there to be a little bit more of a focus in on just that quick twitch athleticism rather than the, the height, rather than the arm length and things like that. Um, you know, it, it remains to be seen exactly how, how Seattle pairs that up. But again, to me, one of the most exciting things about this draft class, as well as this free agent class, there are a lot of players and, and some of the defensive coaches that Seattle just brought in and in, in Desai and, and, and Carl Scott as well. I mean, just the, the relationships that they've built with, with some of those pa- uh, some of those pass rushers, some of those defensive backs that are set to be free agency. I think that's something that Seattle is looking at as well. I think you look at the free agent crop and the draft class, the strengths in this group, the three things I just mentioned. This was a defensive end pass rushing group that I thought was okay. But the more that I've looked at this group, I actually think it's got a lot of depth. I think you get some really good edge rushers on day two, early day three. And so you can get somebody that fits this 3-4 scheme as that overhang linebacker that rushes a lot, can drop back when needed. I think there are a number of players you could look at in that regard. The free agent crowd, players like Hassan Reddick, Chandler Jones, there are a number of players that fit that position really well. The man coverage aspect at corner, like I said, Seattle's already had the guys there if they can bring them back. If not, you could maybe retain Sidney Jones and you have Trey Brown coming back. I think Trey Brown is a good fit as long as he's healthy coming back from a knee injury and you've got a good draft class to bring in a corner that may be a good fit if you're running more man coverage than you have in the past. Interior defensive line, not a lot of depth there in this draft class, but you've got some potential bargains in free agency. And it also could be a position on day two that you could maybe pick somebody like a Perion Winfrey that can come in day one and contribute for you. So I think that all those things are lining up well 
for what few needs the Seahawks have on their defensive roster right now from a personnel standpoint. Get some of those players re-signed, plug in a few holes with draft picks and free agents. They have most of the personnel they need. So this discussion's got me excited about free agency and the draft. We're going to continue to dive into this more as we progress in the offseason. We get closer to the start of the league year as well as the draft in late April. As always, thanks for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Now make your second listen Locked on Bets, your daily one-stop shop for all your gambling needs. Locked on Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. You can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Check out Locked on Seahawks on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and of course on YouTube streaming five days a week. Coming up tomorrow, I'll be riding solo. Going to be taking a look at what the Kansas City Chiefs did with their offensive line. And if the Seahawks decided to replace all five of their starters in similar fashion, what might that look like this offseason? Going to be a fun topic of discussion. Hope you'll be listening in. Enjoy the rest of your President's Day. Thanks for listening. Go Hawks.